that be the proclamation of our hearts. How great thou art. I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 23. didn't bring your Bible, we should have the verses behind me on the screen. This morning our text is Matthew 23, verses 29 through 39. I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. Please follow along as I read God's holy word. Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets And adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is you speaking to us. We pray that we'd listen. Please open these truths to our hearts and minds. Change us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you're finding your seats, I'd ask you to keep your outlines nearby. We'll refer to them often. The... Scribes and Pharisees, we learn a lot about them in this passage. And one of the things we see about them, though it's not said outright, is that they're a selfish people. One of the marks of a selfish people that we see in these scribes and Pharisees is that they are hyper-focused on the present their, their main area of concern is right now. How do I get pleasure right now? How can I be happy right now? What around my life can I manipulate so that I am satisfied right now? And now the, the hyper selfish person, the person hyper Uh, focused on the present it doesn't mean they don't think of the past and future but their, their thoughts of the past are going to be not so much what can I learn from the past but much more how can I use the past for me right now how can I think of the past and make it twist so that it validates what I am and who I am right now and and the selfish person doesn't mean they don't think about the future But it's, what do I think is best for me right now in regards to the future? I want to save for the future because right now that retirement pleases me. I don't want kids right now because it's going to mess up my plans for 20 years. I'm thinking about what makes sense to me right now because in my selfishness, all I care about is me here and now. Hopefully, we understand as Christians, as we embrace a Christian worldview, that we care very much about the present, but we also care about the past and the future. As believers, we understand that those things that happened in the past, God's hand was guiding and directing them, so they matter. 
And we want to learn from the past. We want to learn from the good of the past. We want to learn from the bad of the past. Some historians use the word trajectory. When this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, it leads to things. So if this and this and this have happened, we recognize from history that's either a good trajectory or that's a scary trajectory. We want to learn from those things. As Christians, we understand in the past, Christ died on the cross. That's not a story. That's a historical event that happened in the Christ, in the past. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ really happened. And our salvation, our faith rests in that. So the past matters. And the future matters. We're talking about us ourselves our future matters. We were created with a soul that will live forever or will die forever. One of those two things is going to happen. There's eternity in my future. And that matters. And the rest of my life matters. As a Christian, I want to serve and honor and bless the Lord with the rest of my life. So I invest in the future. I invest in my future the best I can, preparing myself to be as faithful as I can for the rest of the years God's given me. I invest in others in their future. I invest in my kids and in other kids because I believe there is a future and it matters. I believe God's establishing his kingdom and his kingdom matters. So I invest in the future. I invest in others' future. The future matters. As we look at this passage, as Jesus is ending this very harsh lesson, very harsh rebuke to the scribes and Pharisees, he reveals to us that he is the Lord of the past and the present and the future. And they all matter. We look in our, at our text, beginning in verse 29. We have this under the heading, the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. Once again, we see the woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. If you've been following along with us the last few weeks in this chapter, over and over again, Jesus starts a declaration, starts a statement with the phrase, woe to you. If you remember, Pastor Brian explained to us a few weeks ago that that's a, a word of rebuke. Almost the, has the weight of a curse. Not that I'm bringing a curse, I'm acknowledging the curse you've brought upon yourself through, through your heart, through your way of living. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and for the seventh time in this passage, he calls them hypocrites. We said a few weeks ago, this word literally means the one who wears the mask. You're a stage performer, you're an actor, you're a fake. You're a hypocrite. You're, pro you're trying to convince everyone around you that you're holy. But that's a mask covering up the real you. And the real you is so far from holy. And once again, Jesus explains why he's saying such a harsh thing to them. In this passage, still in verse 29, he says, Here's why you're a hypocrite, scribes. Here's why you're a hypocrite, Pharisees. Because you build the tombs of the prophets... And adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. So here's the hypocritical action of the scribes and Pharisees in this part. They build monuments to prophets of the past. Build tombs of prophets of the past. And this word build, and then later on in the, in the verse, the word adorn, both of the, the way these words are used, it could mean either they build them from scratch or they were already built and they're working to maintain. Either meaning doesn't change the meaning of this verse at all. You scribes and Pharisees, you are investing, you are working, you are beautifying all of these different monuments, all of these different grave sites for the prophets. And so that we're on the same page, that's not the bad thing that Jesus is talking about. 
um, we, if we go to Washington, D.C., we are surrounded by monuments. We are surrounded by memorials. Um, and, and they all have a purpose. And if we, we can't help but be captivated by history when we spend time in those important areas of Washington, D.C. And that's not a bad thing. We, we, can, we can look at those monuments and look at those memorials and remember their sacrifices of the past and be thankful for those things. The, the negative is not you're building these monuments. The negative is you're building these monuments. You're beautifying these monuments of prophets of the past and you're, you're making a statement while you beautify. You can almost picture when the scribes and Pharisees say these things that they, they, they puff out their chest and they stand a little taller. If we would have been around in those days of the prophet, we would have responded appropriately. So then we, well, what does that mean to respond appropriately? Well, if we read our Old Testament and we look at those prophets, we, we see two different roads. Sometimes God sent a prophet and through that prophet there was huge revival. Praise the Lord for that. But there were also times God sent his prophet and they were hated and rebuked and thrown in prison and stoned and sawn in half, fill in the blanks. There were both. And a lot of these monuments were built towards these prophets who came with God's message and God's people said, we don't want that message. There were sometimes in the Old Testament, God's people actually came, God's prophets came with a true message. There was some other false prophet on the other side saying, that's not true. God didn't say you guys are doing wrong. God said you guys are great. In the New Testament, those are called the ear ticklers. They come with the message the people want. Ooh. I like this gospel better than this gospel. I like this word from God better than this word from God. This word from God makes me feel good. I choose to listen to this. This word from God over here makes me feel bad. I will persecute that prophet. I will stone We look back in hindsight through the scriptures. The scribes and Pharisees look back through the scriptures in hindsight. And they recognize these prophets over here that were persecuted. Those were the true prophets. So here now, hundreds of years later, are the scribes and Pharisees saying, we stand with God's prophets. And we have the wisdom and faith. If we would have been alive in that time, we would have had their back. We would have known they were God's true prophets. We would have known they were the ones that came with God's truth. And we would have supported them 100%. And Jesus looks at them building those monuments. And hears those words. And says, you scribes and Pharisees are hypocrites. You're wearing a mask and you're trying to fool everybody else into thinking that's the real you. Letter B, this is verse 31. Therefore, says Jesus, you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Witnesses against yourself. What does that mean? The Pharisees, by them saying, yes, our forefathers murdered those prophets, and yes, they were wrong, Jesus says, you're witnessing against yourself because, number one, you confess that the murder was wrong. And number two, your actions yell loud and clear. You're guilty of the exact same crime. We have a phrase in our culture, like father, like son. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. You're just like those forefathers. You're just like those that came before. You're just like those the Old Testament speaks against. 
that were rebuking and saying, no, you're not coming with God's message. Verse 34, excuse me, verse 33, let's read that first. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? We go back to verse 7 of this chapter. The scribes and Pharisees, they love to be called rabbi. They love to be called teacher. Jesus says, I have a much better name for you. You shouldn't be called teacher. You should be called serpent. You should be called viper. Venomous, belly-crawling, deceptive beast. Much better fits who you are. Harsh words. Verse 34, therefore indeed, Jesus says, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. And if you're a note taker, you can't see this in English, but the way the sentence is formed in the Greek, the, all the attention, the emphasis is on the I. So if he were typing this out with a word processor, I would be bold, italic, underlined. Jesus is saying, I send you prophets. I send you wise men. I send you scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Jesus says, you make the proclamation you would have had the back of those old prophets. But you're proving that's a lie because in your generation, in this time right now, you've received God's prophets, you've received God's teachers, you've received people, they've come with God's truth, and you've rejected every word of truth. Remind yourself of where John the Baptist is right now. When Jesus is proclaiming this, John the Baptist has no head. Remind yourself of what the scribes and Pharisees are literally doing at the time that Jesus is saying this. Jesus is saying, look what you've done to God's people. He could, be say, he could have said, this is clearly, think about the notes you are taking right now to crucify the Son of God. You have the audacity to say, you stand with God. You're about to crucify God in the flesh. You're guilty of the same crime. Verse 35. That on you, you scribes and Pharisees, may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. This is big time stuff. You, on you, scribes and Pharisees, is all the guilt of every righteous person that's ever been killed. I'm out, Jesus. What? Because, you know, if this, the scribes and Pharisees, they should know their scripture. So if they're countering, if it's a back and forth, they say, Jesus, wait a second. Are you putting our father's guilt on us? Because doesn't the Bible say the son does not bear the guilt of the father? Which is 100% true. When the Bible speaks of justice, the Bible says, when someone's guilty, we don't throw that guilt on their kids and their grandkids. That guilt is theirs. That, that's the appropriate justice. And it, so it seems to say that Jesus is saying all of those crimes are your fault, even though they weren't alive during that time. So, so what is Jesus saying? Because he's not saying that. He's not at all speaking against what the scripture already says. He does not contradict the word of God. But we think about all of those crimes, the crime in this situation being the unjust killing of God's people. The, the unjust killing of uh, God, all of God's people leading up to Christ, why were they killed? For standing for God and his promise of the coming Messiah. And what's about to happen, not the coming Messiah, but the right there in their presence Messiah is about to be crucified. All of those horrible crimes that came before 
They all rest on the shoulders of the crime you are about to commit. You bear the blood of every one of those slain because it, it was all about, all leading towards, it was all a foreshadowing of the unjust crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions two names. Abel and Zechariah. In English, it almost looks like maybe it's an A to Z kind of thing, talking about completeness. Um, there, now, again, as Christians, we care about the past. Let's do a little history. In the old Hebrew Bible, the way their books were ordered, and you know, so the books of the Bible are inspired. The order of the books is not inspired. Man did that. The way the old Hebrew Bible was put together, it wasn't Genesis to Malachi, like our Old Testament is. It was Genesis to Second Chronicles, which made sense because Second Chronicles, if you're going through chronologically, Second Chronicles is basically the last thing that would happen in Old Testament times before the 400 silent years. So if they had, and they didn't have books like us necessarily, but the beginning of their Bible, so New Testament hadn't been written yet, obviously, when Jesus is talking. Their Bible, their Old Testament books, started with Genesis and had all the same books as us and ended with Second Chronicles. So in Genesis, in the opening pages of Genesis, we have Cain murder Abel. And I bet if we had people in this room that had only been Christians for five minutes, you probably heard the story of Cain and Abel, right? I mean, th this is one that, that kind of just transcends. And so Cain... And Abel both offer sacrifices. Cain's was not accepted. Abel's was. And Cain was not happy with that. So even though there, were only, there weren't that many people on the earth, but Cain's already getting wound up, already letting anger take control of him. I believe this verse will be on the screen if I did it right. Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So there we have very early in human history, history's first murder, an unjust murder. Okay, so we have, we have Cain killed. And then in 2 Chronicles, we have a man named Zechariah unjustly murdered. 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20 and 21. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him. At the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Here's a prophet of God delivering God's message. In essence, repent. King says, I don't like that message. Kill him. And look at where he's executed to show just how depraved these people are. He's stoned in the court of the temple. The holy place intended for God's worship is now the place of unjust murder. These are our bookends that Jesus mentions from the unjust murder of Abel at the beginning of the Bible all the way to the unjust murder of Zechariah at the end of our Old Testament Bible. All of those murders in between, you bear their blood. Now, if you're a sharp reader, you're going, okay, wait a second. The, Zach the second Chronicles passage says Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, but the Matthew passage says it's Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Um, this, we don't have time to get in those weeds. There's speculation as to why the names are different, and it's just that, it's speculation. But very clearly, because of the way Zechariah died, and because of the way the Hebrew Bible was put together, Jesus is very much talking about this Zechariah in Second Chronicles. So there's no mistakes in the Bible. Jesus is talking about Abel. He's talking about Zechariah. Through our scripture, there were unjust murders. Through history, there have been unjust murders. You scribes and Pharisees, 
you bear that weight, you bear that guilt through what you're conspiring and what you're about to do. And if you look, there's um, notes or verses in your notes of plenty of other verses in both the Old and New Testament of the Jews persecuting God's people. Uh, several years ago, our church went through the book of Acts, if you were back there uh, with our church at that time. Maybe you remember, basically every time Paul came to a new city, what followed him? Jews wanting to persecute him. He'd witness, he'd serve in a city, he'd be faithful, and all of a sudden there'd be persecution, and all of a sudden there'd be this crowd. It's like, where did you come from? They've been following him. They're, they're so wrapped up in their own bitterness. They have to be wherever Paul is, trying to destroy him, destroy his ministry. So this is very much something when Jesus says, in the present tense, this is what you do. That is very accurate of this generation of scribes and Pharisees. It makes verse 37 that much more incredible. Because we have 36 verses in this chapter of you scribes and Pharisees are among the most hard-hearted people ever. You scribes and Pharisees are about the most hypocritical people ever. You scribes and Pharisees are conspiring right now to execute the Son of God in the midst of him proclaiming this hard message. All of a sudden, the purity of the compassionate heart of Jesus shines through. Verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Some of the commentaries I read preparing for, for this sermon, uh, a few of them said they were of the impression that verse 37 is not actually showing a compassion Jesus has for them, but is actually a word of rebuke, and he's still on them. Shame on you, Jerusalem, for not figuring this out. The destruction is coming. I respectfully disagree with that because of the hen analogy. To, to me, this hen analogy, the hen gathering her chicks is screams compassion. Let me try to explain why. Because he uses a hen in the analogy as a protector. And if you know your Old Testament, that's a pretty weak protector. Because you look at the Old Testament, Psalms especially, he's a high tower, he's a fortress, he's a stronghold. Question military men. Want to be protected by a stronghold or a hen? If there is an invading army, give me the fortress, not the chicken. That's, what protection does that do? But that's the analogy Jesus uses. In this section where he's pointing to his, I believe, pointing to his compassionate heart and speaking of his desire to protect, he uses a hen analogy. Why? Because, in my opinion, and I've been wrong once or twice today, I, I taught on Trinity today. You want to hear wrong, me trying to explain the incomprehensible? I, I did my best. Um, the stronghold, the fortress, the shield, those are inanimate objects that don't have emotions. They're powerful. They're made and they're there. But the hen, the mother hen, reaches out out of care. Reaches out out of compassion. Reaches out because she knows what's best for her chicks. She sees danger coming and she brings them in where it's most safe. So I, I, I respectfully disagree with the, some, many of the commentators that I read do see this as compassion. I, I believe the hen is what it's all about, to, to bring us to the place of compassion. After proclaiming the judgment that's coming upon 
the Jerusalem as a city. We'll talk about that in a minute. Be, because of the hard hearts, he can't contain his compassion. I want to protect y'all. How many times have I reached out with the truth? But you turn away. And that's the heart of the missionary. When a missionary comes into a town, they don't get uber reformed and say, God, give me the people you elected. They say, God, save them all. One of my heroes, John Knox, his great prayer, give me Scotland or I will die. He was as Calvinistic as they came. And he didn't say, God, I know you have a plan for X number of people. He cared for them all. Every single person in Scotland has an eternal soul. I beg you, save them all. And Jesus had this heart. Luke 19, 41 through 42. Now as he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it. Saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that made for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. And Paul, over and over again, especially in Romans. Paul says in Romans 9, 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Romans 10, 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. The missionary cares for the souls. The missionary desires the salvation of the souls. They're overwhelmed with compassion. They're overwhelmed with wanting to honor the Lord. And I believe that same heart is seen in Jesus in this passage. The compassionate heart of Jesus for a city that he knows is in a lot of trouble. If you want to turn your outline over, Roman numeral 3, that does bring us to the judgment of God. And in this passage, we see the introduction of what we're going to see a whole lot more in the next two chapters. When we're talking about judgment, there is an earthly aspect of it, and there's an eternal aspect of it. And the, the best explanation I ever heard from this, the phrase is, and it helps me a lot, hopefully it helps you, God doesn't judge nations in eternity. Nations get judged, but a nation gets judged on earth. Humans, you and I, we receive an eternal judgment. We as individuals appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. But America doesn't do that. Babylon doesn't do that. Israel does not give an account as a nation. But we very clearly see in the Bible, nations are held accountable. So when a nation turns their back on God, God in his perfect timing brings judgment upon that nation. And if we think through that, when the, the judgment comes upon the nation, there's a whole lot of people in that nation, and a lot of those people are not directly responsible for the reason for that judgment. As Americans, our president represents us. And our president might make a really bad choice that brings war. We can't raise our hand and say, you know what? We didn't support that decision, so we don't want to be judged for that decision. If war comes and we're here, war comes to us. Whether we agreed or disagreed with that decision. This is how God works throughout history. There is a judgment upon nations and there's a judgment coming upon jerusalem looking at verse 36 of matthew 23 assuredly jesus says i say to you all these things will come upon this generation and, and we see in the next chapters and a little bit before this this is talking about what we now know in history this is talking about what happened in a.d 70 okay if we are really good with our history what a.d 70 that's a long time ago in AD 70, that was the worst part of the war between the Jews and the nation of Rome. That was when Jerusalem was sieged and completely conquered and completely destroyed. And I am saying completely. From all the accounts of the historians of that era, it was among the most destructive acts they'd ever seen or ever heard about. By some estimates, 
a million Jews were killed during that siege. The temple, the physical structure that represented God's presence with his people Israel, was literally destroyed brick by brick. Think back of American history. 9-11, Pearl Harbor, when the White House was attacked in the War of 1812. These attacks that came to our nation that shook us at our core, we can at least still say, and most of us in this room are old enough to remember 9-11, we're still here. Not to diminish the hurt from 9-11, but we still exist as a nation. With what happened in AD 70, Jerusalem ceased to exist. That was the extermination of a people group. That was the total annihilation of a nation. And it's coming upon, according to Jesus, this generation. A biblical generation is roughly 30 to 40 years. Jesus spoke these words roughly A.D. 30. The destruction comes in A.D. 70, roughly 40 years away. Within this generation, earthly judgment is coming, and it's coming hard. But that's not the worst of it. Because he also speaks of eternal condemnation. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. Let's talk about two of those words real quick. The word house, that's referring to the temple, the house of God. Your temple is left to you desolate. New King James says desolate. Almost every time that word is translated, it's wilderness. The temple is a barren wasteland. You've turned your back on God so much. That temple, that physical building that is supposed to represent God's presence with you, it might as well be an empty wilderness. Verse 39, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, he says you'll see me no more. But that's not physically true because a lot of, not every person he's speaking to, but a lot of those scribes and Pharisees, they're going to be witnesses of Jesus on the cross. So they're going to physically see him. So this is not talking about, you're not going to physically see me. Over, if we reread this chapter, I believe, what was my count? I wrote it down this morning. I counted four times in this chapter this morning that Jesus refers to them as blind. And when he says blind, he's not talking about physical blindness. He's saying, you've intentionally blinded your heart and you're unable to see the truth about Jesus. So he's saying to these scribes and Pharisees, the hardness of your heart is such, even when the, the, the earthly condemnation comes and all of these prophecies are about to be fulfilled, you're still going to refuse to believe in Christ. You're going to refuse to see the truths about Jesus until you're forced to proclaim, blessed is Jesus, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's going to be a point where even the most hardened atheist will proclaim, Jesus, you are Christ. You are the son of the living God. Let's look at two passages. Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 45, uh, verses 22 and 23. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I've sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall take an oath. And then it's basically repeated in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 9 through 11, therefore God also has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will get the glory he deserves. It's going to happen. Judas will bow his knee in worship and proclaim Christ Lord. Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, Hitler, fill in the blank. Satan will proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. That's really good news. Let's talk about the truth. Because the truth is, some will have made that declaration on earth and will then again make that declaration on the judgment day and will enter eternity. Will enter the new heavens and the new earth. Some will have rejected Christ their whole life. And on the judgment day, will finally proclaim him Lord and Savior. And that will be the last thing they do before they're cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Eternity is coming. Only two destinations. Only one way to paradise. What do we do with this? This is a hard chapter. Hard passage. Well, let's apply it in two ways. We're in the Roman numeral four. Letter A, let's learn from the past. As Romans 15, 4 says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning so that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. We should learn from the past, especially the past that's recorded in God's infallible word. Okay, so we, we have a responsibility to learn. The past was not written for our manipulation. The past is not there for us to take what we like and refuse what we don't. We don't get to change history. Our call is to learn. We learn from the past in the scripture. We learn from our own past. How many, and how many of us had people that invested in us that said in essence, please learn from my mistakes. I blew it. And I'm sharing wisdom with you, praying that you wouldn't make that same mistake. And then how many of us are heartbroken when they don't learn from our mistakes? And they learn through the same way we learned, by falling so hard. And then we look back and go, it sure would have been easier to learn the easy way. Can't tell you how many times in my life I've gone, oh man, my parents were right again. Wow. They're way smarter than 13-year-old me gave them credit. So many times something will happen. Didn't my dad tell me that was going to happen? I'll say something to my kids. And then I'm praying, let my kids be smarter than me. I stumbled and fell a whole lot of times. May God bless them and help them learn from the past. And shame on me if I don't learn. And I keep making the same mistake over and over and over. I'm saying shame on me. That's me. That's the story of my life. How many times at night when I pray, God... Same prayer again. Made the same mistake again. I knew better this time. You told me. Flesh jumped up again. Stubborn me got in the way again. May we learn from our past. May we learn from the Bible's past. May we learn from history's past. And letter B, may we understand the importance of of living right now for the future. Right now. How many young people think they're going to live forever? I'll work on that later. I'll fix that later. I'll read my Bible tomorrow. I'll faithfully attend church every week when I retire. Or when my knees are too sore to play softball every Sunday. And we put off. And we put off. And we put off. 
And the Bible helps us understand that the things that we do right now are eternally significant. And the way we live right now, we have to give an account on the judgment day. Now, as I'm talking about judgment day, let me be as clear as I can. I don't want to mislead anybody. Our salvation does not rest on our good works. We do not earn God's favor by being really good. Okay, we are only saved by grace. We are only saved by faith. Our works don't save us. The work of Christ saves us and our faith and rest in his finished work saves us. But when we are saved, we are given new life that starts right when we are saved. So if you were saved when you are eight and you are right now 80, you have had new life for 72 years. You've had 72 years to invest in eternity. You've had 72 years to prepare your soul for the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth. You've had 72 years to build up treasure storehouse for you in eternity. And some people go, no, I don't want treasure. Heaven's not about me being rewarded. Guess what? Bible talks about it way too much for it to not be true. Way too much. And the Bible says over, and we're going to see it in chapters 23 and, or 24 and 25, the idea of a judgment day. The idea that there will be that time God in his justice listens to every single one of us give an account. That thing you did yesterday you hope nobody saw, you're going to talk about that with your Savior. That thought you had that dwelled in your mind and poisoned the rest of your system that you hoped nobody else noticed, you have to give an account for that. That's terrifying. Praise the Lord we don't rest our salvation in our thought life. We still give that account. And, and over and over again, this is used as a prod to encourage us as saved people to live holy lives for the Lord right now. You have a verse in your notes, well, the reference is in your notes, Acts 17, 30 through 31, one of the many passages on the judgment day. Maybe some of you know Acts 17. In Acts 17, this is Paul's debate with the philosophers. He's on Mars Hill, Philosophy was a really big deal back then. Paul got in it. Somebody was asking me this week, last week, about, you know, debates and stuff. And I'm like, I try to stay away from debates. Not Paul. Paul basically jumped headfirst into a Facebook debate. Like, those never end well. There he is. And he introduces Christ. He shares the one true God. You guys talk about things. Here's the truth. Here's how he ends. Verses 30 and 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. I'm not really a big fan of the hell, fire, and brimstone pastors. That was Jesus and Paul. He saw the time and the place. Paul did. Jesus did. He introduced some really hard truth. There's a heaven. There's a hell. There's a need to repent. Trust Christ alone. For those of you that have trusted Christ alone, praise the Lord, welcome to the family. Here's part two. And it is part two. Part one comes first, repent. Part two, live for him now. Bring glory to his kingdom now. Invest in eternity now. What does that mean? Let's keep it real simple. Let's go back one chapter. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. When you are guided by those two things, living in that humility and in that love, you are living for the future and you don't even know it. You're building up your treasure storehouse and you're not thinking about, woohoo, eternal rewards. You're thinking, let me be used by God today. Let God serve others through my life right now. And that's a blessing thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a, a heavy responsibility. Thinking about the past, thinking about the present, thinking about the future. It might overwhelm us to think about eternity. It might make us uh, tremble and want to hide when we think about being vessels used by God to build his kingdom. But for those of us that have repented, for those of us that were saved by grace, this is exactly what you called us to do. So, Father, I beg you to help us learn from the horrible hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. I pray that you would overwhelm us with humility. That you would fill us with your love that flows out of us. May we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we love your people. Remind us, you take this life seriously. You take our thoughts and our actions seriously. Remind us that you've given us a new life. So it's not a burden for us to live for you. It's not an impossibility for us to live for you. You've gifted us with your Holy Spirit to empower us to grow in sanctification, meaning to grow more and more like Christ. Help us to do those things. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the time where we will celebrate communion. We have... The cup's up here with a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine or grape juice or really old Kool-Aid, whatever it is. It's a reminder. It's an important reminder. It's a visible reminder. And if we can picture the very first communion, when Jesus said, take this bread... He was literally holding physical bread before them. And when he said the words, my body is going to be broken for you. He physically broke the bread in their presence. As he was speaking of brokenness, he was showing the disciples brokenness. When he was telling them, do this in remembrance of him together, they all took the meal together. When he spoke of the wine, he 